0: Would you pray with me? Now there was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus, and he didn't believe. The same came to Christ by night, wanted to be taught out of human sight. Nicodemus was a man desiring to know how a man can be born when he is old. Christ told Nicodemus as a friend, man, you must be born again, said marvel, not man, if you want to be wise. Repent, believe, and be baptized, then you'll be a witness for my Lord. You'll be a witness for my Lord. You'll be a witness for my Lord. My soul is a witness for my Lord. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight.
1: O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Many of you know that I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Independence, Missouri. And it was, unlike what a lot of stereotypes that New Englanders think about Southern Baptists, not a hellfire and brimstone place. It's a very loving intergenerational community, probably not much unlike what this community was like in the 70s and 80s. Perhaps a little more conservative in its values, but overall a very loving, caring place in which I was taught that I was a child of God, and no one could take that away from me, and I dared to believe it. And it has been a core of who I am and my self-esteem ever since. When I was about 15, we decided in this church to start visiting the people who had come on Sunday morning in their homes on Monday night, just showing up unannounced, to see if they'd like to come back to church again. Now, this is a very sort of... Midwestern, Southern, Southern Baptist kind of thing that I know none of you would want to do, but it it was an effective strategy of how we might really talk to the people who visited us and get to know them better. We started this process on Monday nights. We had a little dinner, and then we'd go out visiting, cold calling, as it were, and then we decided to get a curriculum to go along with this, which was called, now wait for it, Evangelism Explosion. It was written by Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I took the course as a 15-year-old in order to be a salesman for Christ, going door to door to the people who had visited our church. Now I know that scares the bejesus out of a lot of people. But for me as a 15-year-old who was trying to take his faith seriously and figure out how to live it, it felt like the first time that actually I was doing something about it that I was actually going out and sharing something that was important. I was actually getting some theological training in this course. Now, it is a theology that I have since tweaked and worked with, but it was a basic core theology. We memorized verses, so we had them in our sales pitch, verses like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is a classic of Pauline theology and Augustinian theology, It is by grace, through faith, that you have been saved. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest you should boast. And finally, the one here, many other verses, but the one we heard today, which is probably the best-loved and well-known verse, printed in every Gideon Bible, in every hotel room, in every language conceivable. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we actually led some people to become believers in Christ. A year later, I came to visit Boston for the first time. I was a guest of my sister, who's 10 years older than I am, and she introduced me to Cambridge and Brookline and Boston, and I fell in love. Actually, I discovered much later that my ancestors had lived in Cambridge in the 17th century, and it all started to make sense. But at that time, what I loved was the cultural institutions. I loved the brick sidewalks and the granite curves. I loved the architecture. I loved the valuing of education. And it felt to me like the level of conversation was on a different plane. My sister's boyfriend at that time was a very smart MIT grad whose father had been an Episcopalian priest but sort of diverted from that and became a Playboy salesman. And her boyfriend was caught, I think, in the crossfires of this ideological shift. And when I shared with him some about my own faith and Christianity, he said, you know, you probably shouldn't share that with too many people around here. (laughs) They will think you're not very smart. Later, I fell in love with the love of my life who was steeped in the liberal arts tradition and Western suburban ethic of this culture who told me the same thing. (laughs) If you're too religious people will think you don't know much. Now that is, I think, somewhat still true in this part of the country, which is known, as in other parts of the country, as the none zone. When you're given a survey or a census form to check what religious affiliation you have, more people here will check none. And I served a church in another nun zone in the Pacific Northwest, which is even more none than New England is. When I think about this story, which is often told on the second Sunday of Lent, about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Because he didn't want to risk it. He didn't want to be seen. You see, Nicodemus knew what the rules were. He knew how the church was supposed to work. Or in that day, the temple was supposed to work. He knew all the laws. He was a person of power. Much like someone in the Vatican hierarchy or even in our own U.S. government but he was curious about what this itinerant (laughs) rabbi had to share and about all these words of healing and teaching about love that he was doing, and he just had to know, but he couldn't risk it, so he went at night. He pops up a few other times in John's Gospel, one in an argument with the Pharisees about whether or not to uh, take Jesus to jail, and he says, well, shouldn't we hear these people out first? And then when Jesus actually is crucified, Nicodemus is the one who shows up with a 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh to prepare the body. So something caught wind in this little conversation. It didn't change him forever, at least not as far as John got with the story, but maybe later it did. Nicodemus is a word that means victory of the people. There was a lot at stake for Nicodemus. I like to say that he was a closet Christian, that he was curious and wanted to get close to this person, Jesus, but he didn't want too many other people to know about it. And sometimes I wonder how many of us are like that. How often are we a little bit ashamed or risk averse to declaring our Christianity publicly? I know I'm like that a lot of times, even though I'm an ordained pastor. Often if I'm on a plane or in a coffee shop, and I have a religious book out, or the Bible, or even my United Church of Christ calendar, which has some bizarre covers to it, (laughs) quoting scripture verses, I get a little concerned about what other people might think about me when they see that. Because I don't want to be identified with Christians who think this is the only religion that matters. I don't want to be identified with Christians who think that being anti-abortion is the only way to be Christian or that marriage equality is not right. I don't want to be associated to th- that people think, I think like Christians, who think that global warming is a whole hoax, and that we don't have some responsibility, or who think that science is antithetical to religion. Because I, as a Christian, don't believe any of those things, and yet I'm trying to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ as best I know how, as I was taught in my Southern Baptist classroom when I told them that if Jesus were alive today, he'd be a socialist, or perhaps even a communist. And they laughed me right out of that Sunday school room and into your church. <laughs> so I understand what keeps us in the closet. And believe me, I know what it's like to be in the closet. It means you're ashamed of something very fundamental about who you are. It means you don't want to risk employment, or friends, or people finding out what you're really about. And I believe it hampers us. I believe every time that we shut up about our kind of Christianity, or what we perceive as Jesus' kind of Christianity, more importantly, we cede the floor in the public square to someone else. And we give up on what we really believe. Now, I know that a lot of us may not come here specifically for theology. We probably come here for a shared sense of community, to be together, or because there's amazing, consistently wonderful music that inspires us and binds us together, or a place where we know our children will be affirmed and invited to lead us forward. I believe those are all Christian virtues. We may also come here because there's a commitment to social justice and making the world a more just and fairer place for all people. And this is what Jesus taught us. It was a radical gospel that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, that we should love our enemies, even those who betray us and persecute us, that we should take care of the poorest and most downtrodden among us. But sometimes we're a little shaky about that. As I've grown into this vocation and am more confident about it, I have gotten more comfortable sharing about my Christianity. Now, I have colleagues, even Unitarian Universalist colleagues, who don't consider themselves necessarily Christian, who will not tell people, strangers, that they're ministers. I understand why, on my recent vacation, as I was learning what other people did for a living, a chemical engineer, a school teacher, a former flight attendant, They'd ask me what I do, and I said, I'm a pastor of a church, and the conversation stopped. Part of it is because most of them had given up on church a long time ago. Just as I know, some of the people who walk in our door for the first time are either trying church for the first time or the last time. Some of it, I think, they may have been a little confused because I was with there with my male partner of 28 years, traveling with two other openly gay friends, and they didn't quite reconcile that. And finally, we did have some conversation with people who were bold enough to ask me about that, and I actually got to testify about what I believe. To open up the public square just a little bit more. Now this just isn't my responsibility, this is all of our responsibilities. And let me just say a little bit about, when I look at our budget request, and where we're expanding in ministry, I stay awake at night, Wondering if we are, our dreams are outpacing our capacity as a congregation. I was talking with a colleague this week who said that's exactly the right challenge to have. And I agree. But there are so many good things going on here that I know feed your souls and feed my soul. And I believe it is incumbent on us if we take anything about these stories seriously to share that with other people why not? There are people whose neighbors have never asked them to church, and they actually feel insulted by it. Because, what, you didn't think I would belong there? You didn't think I would be interested? Why did you make that decision for me? Now, I get it. It's hard for us to do, because we don't want to be associated in a certain way, because religion is, to talk about religion is perceived as rude, or because we're shy, or we don't want to seem like proselytizers. So something we can chew on together is there is a difference between proselytizing and evangelizing. You don't have to say evangelizing, you can just say marketing. <laughs> but proselytizing is trying to force an idea or an ideology on other people. Evangelizing, at its root, means sharing good news. And I think there's a lot of good news going on in this place, much different than when I opened the news website every Monday morning. And I believe it's incumbent on us to share that good news wherever we go. That's why I often say that to you in the benediction. So I'm going to give you a few points here to consider. And I invite you either to write them down or check back with the website this week and listen to them because I think they're important for all of us to chew on. I think we need to loosen up and lose some fear about talking about our faith. And here's how I suggest you start. First of all, don't be afraid to talk with other people about religion in general, just as a subject matter. It is universal. Everyone has it. Or a better way is to say, be willing to talk with other people about religion. Don't be afraid to talk about Christianity. Doesn't have to be your Christianity, necessarily, if you need to take some steps into it but just as a phenomenon. What do you think? What do you believe? How did you experience it? The third step I would say is to be willing to ask other people about their experience of religion. Whether it was good or bad or they're indifferent because every single person you know grew up with religion. Whether it was Jewish or Islamic or Buddhist or atheist, yes that is a religious perspective, or an endless, unmitigated hope in the resurrection of the Red Sox or the Cubs, (laughs) or a belief that good taste and good education will save you. Find out what people were taught about belief and religion. And then the final step, well, perhaps the penultimate step, is to be willing to talk about your own religious experience, because no one can take that away from you. I struggle with Christianity just as much as some of you do. I just have the foolishness to get up here and talk about it. (laughs) And the final step, I would say, is to talk about how you experience religion and your faith in this place. Because this is a unique and wonderful experience worthy of sharing. It is good news. And I believe that God so loved the world and gave us Jesus so that we might live and live abundantly. And that's the gospel I'm going to hold on to until my dying day. Amen. Amen.